Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we previewed March Mammal Madness as well as find out some interesting tales of animals interacting with humans. It's that time of year again and we're going to start by previewing the 2020 March Mammal Madness competition and we're going to find out about two stories of animals interacting with humans in surprising ways and leading to changes in behaviour both for humans and for the animals themselves from eels to city foxes. It's March, and in this season we all need something to take our minds off the looming pandemics and number of other challenges facing the world. And that's where large events like sport can come into it. But unlike sporting events which can be cancelled for being large mass gatherings, there's another sporting event that goes through the month of March that involves, well, just checking some results on your phone and engaging in the community of science communicators and fans across the world. And that is, of course, March Mammal Madness, which returns once again in the months of March to help promote a variety of different ideas, concepts, animals you may not have heard of, some latest research, all folded into one fun tournament-based competition. It's your standard 64 competitor knockout tournament, much in the same way as the basketball March Madness contains. Uh, but in this competition, there's actually 65 to be completely accurate because of a wildcard spot, different types of creatures face off against each other for supremacy and dominance in different brackets. Now, how do they battle for supremacy? Well, it involves understanding the size, the weights, the behaviours, the ecology and the habitats, as well as their hunting and predation methods. What happens if you don't have, well, a carnivore? Well, sometimes they can simply displace another competitor. One type of creature may simply push away another when competing for food or even a shared space. And in that way, the winners of this tournament are determined. But it's not like you just find out the results at the end of the day. No, these are narrated full of referenced information about how these creatures live and behave, especially with their interactions to each other. The battles are fun, whimsical, and very, very informative, which is why they're used in a number of schools as learning tools to help teach students about all different types of animals from across the world and have a lot of fun. Now, this is the brainchild of Professor Katie Hind from Arizona State University, and involves a lot of work from a number of collaborators, including Chris Anderson and Josh Drew, along with a large team of artists, fellow science communicators, and professionals involved from museums and other institutions across the world. If you want to get involved, head over to Twitter or Facebook and look for hashtag 2020mmm or go to the mammalssuck.blogspot.com for more information right from the source. And this year, there's actually going to be four different brackets which focus on tiny terrors in tiny creatures, animals that have names that are repeated twice, like the lynx lynx or gorilla gorilla. There's also the cats versus dogs-ish bracket for animals that are cat-ish and dog-ish. And of course, the most interesting is the Anthropocene, which is a pun play on the Anthropocene, the era of current geological time, which was basically human-dominated. Now, these different categories have different types of creatures in them. Most of them, for the majority, are mammals. But there are a few other non-mammals sneaking in there. A couple of fish, some lizards and snakes, and even some lost fungi. And all of this is done in a spirit of fun and learning. 
and it's a great way to learn a little bit about biology that you may not be familiar with. Now, as Australian, there are plenty of Australian creatures involved here, and some that just happen to inhabit Australia. After all, there's the Brolga, and a number of other very cute and small marsupials in the tiny terror division. But we really can't go past the feral camel. The camel, introduced to Australia in the 1800s, adapted so spectacularly to the outback deserts of Australia that they now roam wild, causing large amounts of damage to native animal populations, plants, as well as farms. And in fact, there's so many of them, they're tracked by satellite, which we've talked about here on the podcast before. For that reason, this podcast puts a support behind Team Camel, the feral camel to take the crown, but we'll see how it manages to trend along. So I encourage you to get involved and check it out. Twitter is the main source for all this information to be disseminated, but there are plenty of recaps on YouTube and Facebook and a number of other places. Again, if you want to get involved, search for Arch Mammal Madness or look at hashtag 2020MMM on Twitter. One of the things that comes up again and again in March Mammal Madness is, of course, the interaction between humans and animals. That's why there's a whole division dedicated to that exact boundary. And it's a real big issue for biology. And when we try to analyze and understand wildlife in interacting with humans, you can see start to see changes in those populations themselves. And that's exactly what's been happening in the city of Berlin, and the surrounding areas. Studied by researchers from the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research, as well as paired researchers from Luxembourg's National Museum of Natural History. They've recently published in the scientific journal Molecular Ecology. Now, what they've been digging into is the relationship between country foxes and urban foxes, all around the urban boundaries of Berlin. Now, you might find that as a bit of a funny story, paralleling the city mouse and the country mouse, but it actually does seem to have a real impact on the fox populations. Now, a red fox, Volpes Volpes, which could belong in the double travel division, the 2020 March Mammal Madness, but Volpes Volpes, the red fox, is physically highly mobile, and that gives it the ability to be a pretty opportunistic and omnivore, eating different types of food depending on what's available. And a city is a pretty good place for a Volpes Volpes because, well, it's a novel habitat, they've got a lot of different types of food sources, and, well, there's low risk because there's not many predators around. Now, red foxes were first recorded in Berlin during the 1950s, and by the 1990s, they were pretty much distributed across the entire city. So taking urban Berlin and the neighbouring rural area of Brandenburg, the scientists were able to analyse and study the genetic makeup of the red foxes inhabiting this community, and there's around 370 that they were able to identify and get genetic samples from. But what they managed to find was two distinct genetic clusters, broadly coinciding with the areas of the urban or conurbanation region, along with the adjacent rural countryside region. So there were two fox populations, divided into the city and the country. And this happens all the time where you have populations diverging and spreading apart when there's a barrier in the way, like a river 
or an island. But in this case, humans are actually acting as the barrier. And when you look at these two different populations, there's actually not just a genetic difference, but also some actual behavioral differences between these populations. Now, what they saw is that the urban foxes, the city foxes, were actually far braver and bolder than their country relatives. They would take more risks because they're better adapted to dealing with the presence of humans. So they would do things that a country fox just wouldn't consider because it could bring them into contact with humans. A country fox is more likely to steer well, well clear of human interaction, whereas an urban fox has a higher tolerance for it. They still don't like it, but they're willing to take a bit extra risks to try and get some food. But an interesting piece of the puzzle there is that although even urban foxes are more proposed to actually interact with humans, they will still try and avoid them. They'd rather take a risk crossing a motorway or a railway line than deal with a path in a park which has constant or a lot of human traffic. Mostly because for them, yes, the road or the railway is risky, but it doesn't have people that they can see on it. Whereas the paths greatly increases their risk of human interaction, so they tend to steer clear. And this kind of thing is interesting to understand the way in which animals adapt to and change their behavior to interact with humans. Now, why are the foxes so desperate to keep away from humans? Well, it's because for thousands and thousands of years, people have been hunting foxes. So we could be considered, in their minds at least, definitely a major predator for them. Even now, fox hunting is still legalized as a recreational activity in many countries. So this exerts a pressure on the fox where they're selected over the many thousands of years to want to avoid humans as much as possible. So even in the city, this kind of hardwired instinct to steer clear of humans is still there. In any case, it shows how populations can diverge in islands effectively in different regions of a city, a more urban area and a more rural area. And the same concepts that we see in biology of cloud top islands or actual islands where a population diverges because it has some physical or otherwise barrier that prevents them from talking to each other or interacting, it leads to weird adaptions and changes in the species. And this is just one of the many ways that humans are changing through interaction, whether they know it or not, with the animals around them, as these animals struggle to find a place to live. This is some great research by lead author Sophia Kimmich, published in the journal Molecular Ecology. to find and protect endangered species but finding them on the supermarket shelves is not at all where you want or expect to see an critically endangered species but that exact situation happened to researchers from the university of hong kong's division of ecology and biodiversity and they did an audit of hong kong supermarket shelves this research was led by dr david baker and involved other researchers including john richards and victoria sheng and was recently published in the journal Science Advances. Now, what they were looking at in particular was 
eels and what various eel products were on sale in Hong Kong supermarkets. Now, before you start thinking this is an Asian problem, no, what they're actually investigating was things labeled as European eel. So products that were coming from or claiming to be European eel. Now, what they found is that nearly 50% of retail eel products, ranging from small fillets to snack items from grocers and convenience stores, involved some part of a critically endangered species of fish. Now, the IUCN, the European classifies the European eel, the Anguilla Anguilla, another double name, as at great risk of extinction. So for this reason, trade in European eels and any of their fruit product derivatives is meant to be tightly regulated under the Convention for International Trade of Endangered Species. This means that if you are trying to export, you should have a lot of permits and a lot of information to enable you to do so. It's meant to try and regulate the trade rather than just pretend that it doesn't exist. Say, okay, if you are going to do it, then at least make sure we can audit and track and follow this industry. Now, eel is incredibly popular in East Asia and in particular in Japan. And normally the East Asian populations of the Japanese eel, the Angula japonica, has been the primary source. But due to a lot of ship shipping and fishing in these areas, including other threats from rising ocean temperatures and parasites, all of these had led to dramatic declines in the eel populations. Now, this is true for eels everywhere. Um, if you look in Australia, Indo-Pacific, American, all of the eels, much like the European and Japan, Japanese species, are facing a lot of risks. But the main consumers of eel are still in the East Asia market. So normally what happens is that juvenile eels, often known as glass eels, are caught while they're swimming upstream in their native rivers. That could be anywhere from Europe and North Africa. And then they're smuggled and brought across to Asia, where they're then raised to maturity. So you capture the eel while small and then take it all the way across to Asia, close to the actual final market, and you grow them there. It means that the transport cost for that last stage of the larger eel is obviously reduced, which is why people do it. Now, to date, the capture and captive breeding of eels hasn't really been economically viable. So there hadn't been thought to be that much of a risk to it. But in recent years, this illegal trade of glass eels, this what they use then to seed an eel farm, has been dramatically and sharply increasing. And it's now recognised by most institutions as one of the world's greatest wildlife crimes. Europol itself estimates the scale over... 300 million eels uh, shipped out of Europe annually. Now, why and how these end up on a supermarket shelf is then, again, very much an interesting question. Because to get up on a supermarket shelf, well, you need to go through a lot of steps in the supply chain. It's not like you're buying them on the black market. You're buying them, quite literally, from your local store. So what it suggests is that the prevalence in places like supermarkets in Hong Kong suggests that there's a huge number of European eels that are being farmed actively in Asia. So how do those European eels get all the way from Europe to Asia? And that's really what they're trying to investigate and understand. One kilogram of these glass eels, the juvenile eels, can contain around 3,500 individual eels. And the per kilo price, or the per 3,500 eel price is around 50,000 Hong Kong dollars on the black market. And that means it's quite profitable for an international group to 
capture, collect these wild eels, take them across the borders and sell them. And the problem is here, whilst these eels are in this juvenile glass eel phase, they're small, they're a bit wormy-like, and it can be quite difficult, incredibly difficult, to actually tell a species from another species. So whilst the European eel is critically endangered, their other common cousin eels aren't actually endangered to the same degree, and therefore no permit is required for their trade. And that means you can capture a whole bunch of eels, and unless you're going to go through there and categorize all 3,500 in that one kilo collection, it can be quite easy for many eels to slip through the cracks, so to speak, and end up into Asian markets. Now, this is an important topic of research because it shows that when you have a type of permitting and trade system that allows this to go on, you also need to make sure your rules and metrics are enforceable. Making sure that you have a way to easily and quickly classify between species and actually enforce that check will mean that the species is actually protected. Otherwise, all you have is a piece of paper that protects some eels and doesn't protect the others, which makes it incredibly difficult for enforcement. So this is an example of how we can study behaviours as well as the globalisation of trade and how it links to conservation efforts and how these conservation efforts need to be refined to make sure that there's nothing slipping through the cracks, like a slippery glass eel. This research was published in the journal Science Advances involving several researchers from the University of Hong Kong. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. From the challenges of protecting endangered species and making sure they don't end up on the supermarket shelves, to the urban fox and city fox interacting with each other in different ways. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.